Hello, my friends. Welcome to my house. I'm joking. Just a little. I hope you don't mind. For some reason, I thought it would be a funny thing to say. As you know, I don't have a house. I live in the woods, where I refuse to build anything. I live out in the open, or at least I try to, anyway. I've been avoiding certain things. I think I spoke of this last week, was it? The one before? I'm feeling foggy on time. That always happens to me in the summer months. Day stays so long, it's so hard to tell when it's done. But I have been avoiding things. Because there is something in me that feels wrong, bad. Like the challenges I've been facing have grown inside me into big, monstrous things that have taken me over. And now I am entirely those big, monstrous things, and not spirit that can move freely and joyfully. Every now and then, my love, my warm spirit, my fiery friend who lives here with me, though apart from me, out of respect for the distance that I need, will come and touch my shoulder, or my heart, or my head, and the warmth will make me smile and remind me that I am allowed to smile. Even if there is the sound of loud clamor, cries, construction, destruction, just on the outskirts of this place. The sound of crackling fire will help to drown it out, just for a time, just until I am strong enough to deal with it all. Until then, I must be gentle with myself, I think. Be gentle while still allowing myself time to grow stronger. Allow myself the opportunity to evolve to something powerful enough to... Maybe that's not the right path. Maybe I am in no place to plan anything right now. That is well. I don't want to. But at the same time, I crave peace. Peace. More peace, always. I am hungry for peace. I find myself greedy for it. And I know that's wrong in and of itself, because that speaks to my lack of it more than anything else. How do I restore peace? Even with the noise and the worry and the pounding of my heart. How can I restore peace in these woods? even when things are not resolved or perfect, even as chaos closes in on me with her rattling chains and her strange smile. How can I restore peace here? I asked it of my tarot cards as I shuffled them and tried to find my calm again. I think I succeeded. Out from the deck came the card. 
the card from the Major Arcana that I drew exactly fifty stories ago. Almost one year ago. Almost exactly. I drew... Judgment. The one that stands for, of course, judgment. But also rebirth. Absolution. Commitment to one's highest calling and consciousness. Because judgment is ultimately about reckoning, about rectifying, about being honest with who you are and what you stand for, and recognizing whether or not your actions reflect those things. It need not be a frightening card, but it might be startling to some, I suppose. Now back to the question I asked. How can judgment restore peace here? Well, I think it might be that I feel a lack of peace because I am judging myself maybe a little too harshly. Maybe I am judging others too harshly, too. The noise outside of here? It's being created by people, isn't it? And I love people. Don't I? I have been many things. I have felt many ways, but a few things remain constant. Whether predator or guardian, angel or demon, human or monster, it does not do to wonder if I am good or bad. Judging myself on those terms is futile. My beliefs, if I have those, are not so simple as any of those binaries that I just mentioned, anyway. Nor are they so fixed as to allow me to have any kind of clue. I know what I value. Imagination. Respect. Love. Adventure. Honesty. Nature. I know what I detest. Cruelty. Deception. Manipulation. Greed. And maybe, judgment. I am not innocent of those things I detest, but I think some of the work is to strive to let some of those things go. Well, there I go again. When you probably want a story. And so do I. That is my highest calling anyway, and this card beckons me to do it. And I will do it. Let me find quiet first. I want to tell you a story tonight about someone that countless other storytellers have told you about. I told you a story about them before. Long ago. A vampire in a castle. Yes, I must have a vampire again for this one. But this famous vampire, this notorious undead one, I have told you about. But I made her a woman because I wanted to. I have heard this vampire told so many times and in so many ways, but not that one. So I think I ought to be consistent in my telling and I shall keep her an eternal, ancient thing of, well, 
I would say evil, but you know me, don't you? It's never, ever quite so simple as that. And if I won't judge myself for being good or bad, I cannot apply those judgments to her. Here she is, our majestic vampire, ancient and infamous and powerful and hardened by centuries of bloody battle and predatory behavior. I shall not call her by the name we have heard her called before, or him, because that name belonged to someone once, long ago, and regardless what we think of that person who lived and died and had a home and a country and a wife and children, and a myth that grew into something he probably never imagined. Anyway, I think it's uncouth to take someone's name and turn them into something else, as much as I love the myth. So let us take the myth and put the mantle on the fictional vampiress I have in mind. She wears it so very well. And let us do away with names, because I very rarely find them useful. I said it last week. Monsters are long-lived. Humans not quite so. Humans. Humans have only a handful of life. Only a little taste of it. And they love it so much or they desperately find themselves addicted to it so badly, I should specify, that they cling to it with shaking fingers and blinders over their eyes. And one such human had such a deep hatred in his heart for this famous vampire of which I speak. A famous vampire hunter. Can you imagine? Have you imagined him before? Have you seen him in your mind's eye? An old gentleman with an eccentric personality and wide, observant eyes. Ever ready to do battle with the undead? Not all of them, mind you, but this one vampire in particular, I should say. Despite the doubts and the skepticism of everyone else around him. Picture him now, with wooden stake in hand crucifix hanging from his neck, a huge and ancient book in a forgotten language at his side, full of information and facts, perhaps correct, perhaps surmised, who knows. You know this man, if you know vampire tales. A vampire hunter with a famous name I will not use, either. He had been chasing down our vampire for decades, Ever since he learned of her as a young man, he pursued her across land and time, almost as fervently as she pursued her prey across land and time, too. He was never far behind her. When he was simply a young and bumbling scholar, green and new to vampire hunting, he encountered her once, well before he was ready. He had heard of a frightful thing. A ghost, was it? A demon? 
Only whispers of the ancient word for vampire in the surrounding country were mentioned. But all they knew was that there was something coming, swift as a breeze and dark as a shadow, into their farms every night. Sometimes catching a sheep or a cow and stealing it away, only to discard whatever remained a mile or two from there, leaving a horrible scene for a wandering shepherd or traveler to discover. But other times, she would move silently and stealthily in the darkness of the town, waiting for someone who had lingered a little too late at the tavern, or was sneaking away from a clandestine encounter in the night. Far too late at night for someone to wander in a place such as this. No one ever heard any screams. No one ever heard any struggle. But they would be found the next day. It took several incidents for the townspeople to realize that when they were buried in such a state as they would be found in, they did not remain buried for long. Whoever the monster drained of blood, no matter the circumstances, they would always come back. And they would come back hungry. Our vampire hunter, young as he was, had read about what to do. So he came to show them, to teach them to help them. A stake through the heart, a head removed from its body, a very specifically consecrated burial ground. It was, suffice to say, brutal. But he explained, We are ultimately saving these people, these poor corpses possessed by demons of hunger. Nosferatu. Let us use at least one of the old words, shall we? Need to be destroyed, and through the proper destruction their soul may be saved. I read it in a very old book, you see, and it cannot be wrong, he reasoned. Never mind that we all have a demon of hunger inside of us. Never mind that we can all rationalize such terrible things as hunting and killing and stealing in our own different ways, if we choose to. Never mind. Despite his inexperience at the time, they believed him. He believed himself. He believed in everything he had been taught. And he set out to hunt the source of the evil. Late at night, he wandered the streets of the town, armed and ready. He expected to find a towering king of a man, a Goliath with fangs. Instead, he found a woman in a black cloak her face gleaming in the lamplight, her eyes red as blood, her grin wide and thin as the moon. He brandished his crucifix at her and began speaking in Latin with a trembling voice. He held aloft a wooden stake. She laughed in his face and caught him by the throat and flew up and up and up into the sky with him on wings that he couldn't see, but he could hear, flapping in the wind like the leathery wings of a bat. 
little man, poor little man, she said, turning his face this way and that, so that she might appraise his eyes, his throat, his strength. Poor man to have learned so much and to know so little. What is it that you want? He gasped and croaked, the air being squeezed from him and the cold wind at this great height overwhelming his senses. I want to stop you. I want to destroy you. She raised her eyebrows, perhaps a little bit intrigued by his directness and bravery, but not much else. How noble, she said, a certain emptiness in her voice and eyes, and then she smiled a little wider. How fun. And she shot down to the ground with one swift movement, throwing him and keeping him there with one foot on his chest. And he found he couldn't move at all, so great was her strength. There was a demonic kind of glee in her eyes, one that chilled him to the deepest part of his heart. I would love to dance with you, my foolish friend, but I'm afraid I have bigger battles to fight, and more impressive foes than you. And she raised her head, white fangs shining in the moonlight, and was about to feast until he remembered the vial of water in his coat pocket he'd had the priest bless. He quickly grabbed it and tossed it in her face. Her expression did not change. Nothing changed. It did nothing. Where did you read that? She asked bitterly. Just before he plunged the stake in her chest, did he hit her heart? Did he miss it? He didn't know at the time, but she did scream at that. And it gave him enough opportunity to escape. That was the first time he met her. She left that town. Though he hadn't destroyed her, at least he had made things difficult enough for her that she would have to leave. And no matter where she went... From that day forth, he found her. They never spoke quite as long. He never got quite as good a look at her. Sometimes she wrought destruction in whatever city, town, country they were in. Sometimes she passed by gently and discreetly. But wherever she went, he made her hunting difficult for her. Animal or man, innocent or evildoer, it did not matter, he would not let her hunt. His reputation grew, his wealth increased, his learning expanded. Whether or not his knowledge did as well is subjective, of course, but he aged into a respected and powerful person. And each time she saw him, she smiled a little less as our vampire realized that she too would never know peace as long as they both were alive. A vendetta, my friends. A rivalry for the ages. 
well, at least until the time came for him to die anyhow. She, you see, of course, was immortal. And though he pledged to end her life, it seemed time, that thing that I firmly believe does not exist, was not on his side, but hers. So he, now an old man, began to fear that he might not actually achieve his life's work. He might not restore peace to the world before he died by eliminating her. That thought terrified him more than death itself. He began to grow obsessed. A kind of theme, any day fix, planted itself in his dreams as he slept, and his waking thoughts as he went about by day. I will never know peace. There will never be peace as long as she lives, he told himself, and his old heart pounded and pounded in his chest, and his eyes grew wider and more alert and afraid, and his wrinkles deepened, and he appeared older and older day by day. I must destroy her. I must destroy her. I must destroy her. But unfortunately, it also grew more and more difficult to find her. She was being much more careful, he realized, as word traveled less and less of mysterious deaths, or of the dead rising up from their graves, or rumors of a blood-drinking creature. It appeared she was being selective, he rationalized. She was killing carefully, feasting in the shadows, as was her natural want anyway. Typical. How like her. How monstrous. But he was tenacious, even in his advanced years. He would sniff her out. He always did. Finally, a source of his whispered tell of a wealthy lady who traveled only by night, and who kept hidden by day and had purchased an old dilapidated abbey that had long been abandoned and fallen into disrepair. She had just traveled by sea to move there, and apparently she was already the talk of the town. No news of any suspicious deaths followed. But she was clever. Our vampire hunter knew that wherever she went, death was sure to follow. He traveled long and far. He took a ship across the ocean to settle down in her new city. And soon, he heard that this lady was hosting a party. Something she did weekly, he was told. He scoffed at the decadence, at the audacity. He detested her gluttony and greed. But more than that, he hated her pride. She had made him feel so small, so helpless all those years ago. And he had such little time left to pay her back in kind for it. At the evening of the party, he stood out indeed among the crowd of young aristocrats in their fine dresses and suits. He kept his hand over his coat pocket to feel the comforting weight of the wooden stake against him the same one he'd stabbed her with almost fifty years ago. He knew she could pass as a human if she chose to, but once he made her reveal her red eyes 
her fangs, her invisible wings. Everyone would know what she was. And he could finally, finally end it. He looked around, eager and afraid, adrenaline making the sound of blood rushing through his veins sound like a roaring ocean in his ears. Just like the unrestful ocean he'd sailed on to get here. Just like the unrestful ocean he'd sailed on within himself for the last fifty years. A butler came forward to announce the arrival of the lady of the house. The slayer clutched at the hidden stake, making ready. And down from the stairs she came, to great applause from the dozens of delighted guests. She wore a black gown and a lace veil. She was decorated with diamonds and gold and finery unlike any he'd ever seen. Did she know no shame? And once she had descended, she raised a glass, a glass of what she must have been trying to pass off as red wine, the demon, and lifted her veil to give a speech, to thank her guests for the warm welcome, to invite them to drink, eat, dance, and make merry. It was not her. It was not the vampire. It was just another aristocrat. With her own appetites and decadences, sure. But she was no vampire. Our slayer felt his heart sink. He had felt, deep down, that this was his last journey. This was the last battle he had ever hoped to fight. And now... He had nothing. She had won. The vampire had won. Tears stung the old man's eyes as he grabbed a glass of wine and left the abbey. It was a beautiful night. The sky was clear. He had a little trouble appreciating it, since everything seemed so dim and lifeless in this moment for him. But once he was outside, and the shouts and laughs and revels of the young crowd within the bright, warm party inside became more of a comforting murmur, the peace of the night couldn't help but enter his heart a little. He tried to fight it. After all, he hadn't completed his life's work, had he? And he didn't think he would ever get another chance to. But in failure, there can be peace. There can be rest here, too. And he felt that rest in this moment. A few party-goers passed by him, laughing and entering a carriage, and it broke his trance. And as he followed them with his gaze, his eyes fell on someone else waiting outside, looking up at the sky. Catching their breath. He squinted a little, unable to tell much about them, but they seemed awfully familiar. And she, sensing eyes on her, turned and faced him, and her shoulders slumped a little as she realized who was there. 
staring at her. Oh, no, not you again, she sighed. And the old man was shocked to see the vampire there. She looked exactly the same, quite exactly, as she'd been ten, twenty, fifty years ago, even five hundred years ago, according to the portrait he'd found of her from bygone years. That portrait had hung in his living room since he first encountered her, since she became his obsession. And here she was again, one last time. A little different, though. If he had aged fifty years since she last saw him, so did she. Not in appearance, but perhaps in demeanor. They were tired, the two of them, weren't they? He removed the wooden stake from his coat, and she grimaced a bit. I remember, she said, pulling her collar a little so he could see the scar he'd left all those years ago. He didn't know vampires could scar. Are we dancing again? She asked, resigned. He raised the stake, but his wrist shook. His arm was weak. She could see it. And then, again, he saw her smile. But it was a little different now. I won't fail again, he said, as if convincing himself. You kept it, all these years. The very same one, she remarked, recognizing the weapon. I won't fail again, he repeated, believing it less this time. She walked slowly to him. He grew a little more afraid. In the night they were quite alone now, and she was so swift and still so young. You are much changed. What have you done with yourself all these years? She asked him. I have hunted you, he said. I know. I was there. I saw you. But it's been some time. I thought maybe you'd forgotten. I never forgot, he said. She nodded solemnly. I see. And what will you do once you've killed me? She asked. He sighed. I am sure I will die, because I will be at peace. Peace, she said, grinning. Funny thing. Funny thing that rarely comes from killing. His jaw trembled and his eyes teared up as she said it. She continued, though. I know. I know. Who am I to speak of murder and of peace? She came even closer to him and wrapped her long, cold fingers around his hand on the stake. 
I have been walking this earth since before your ancestors had words for it. I have had power over men's hearts. I have had power over beasts' jaws. I have had power over the wind and the rain, the storm and the sky. I have taken more lives than you could ever fathom, old man. But mark this. I have seen things in that time, too. Things more beautiful, more peaceful, more sweet than I even imagined existing. I have witnessed death, yes, but more than that, I have witnessed life. I have struggled with my hunger. I have struggled with my greed. I have struggled with my rage. I have struggled with my pride. I struggled with that thing inside myself that I used to believe would never, ever let me free from its clutches. And I have struggled with you, too, my friend. I have struggled to find peace in a world where a man as dogged as you has decided that I do not deserve it. Here, she looked him deeply in the eyes. Her eyes were not red, and her smile was not false. She lowered her hand from his so that only he held the stake now. It has been a challenge in my long life to find peace. No thanks to you. You were a mighty challenge indeed. And here she grinned that thin, wide, moon-sliver smile, fangs sliding over her bottom lip, and she whispered, but I am so much more than the challenges I face. He couldn't help himself. He struck at her with the stake. She batted it aside easily with her hand, casting it to the earth. He failed. They stared at the stake on the ground for some time. The old man had given it one last try, and he'd failed. Perhaps he'd meant to. One last challenge. One last struggle he'd faced. One last battle he'd lost. There. Now you can forget me, she said, turning to walk away from him. I hope you can find peace now, too and she disappeared into the shadows. Without landing a single blow, without shedding a drop of either of their aged blood, he felt relief.
I never saw him. Not with my own eyes. I heard tell of him, though. From our lady vampire who I choose to speak of instead of that very famous vampire with that very famous nemesis. She always spoke back on him fondly. Because, even though he'd made her life a living hell for many years, she had invited it by breaking peace wherever she went, for a time. Perhaps he was her judgment card, eh? An uncomfortable moment of reflection and reckoning, followed not by redemption or absolution, but rather, simply, peace. I cannot help that he hated me, she told me, as she sipped from her glass something red, and as I admired her hall of portraits, collectibles in their own rights. If I have no house, no belongings, no physical things anymore other than the trees that grow in my woods, she has a veritable universe of material things, all her own. Perhaps her hunger for human life had to be replaced with material greed. Who knows? Either way, she was quite pleasant this time that I spoke with her. I cannot help that he hated me, and I cannot say he was wrong too. I just didn't want to fight anymore. I have no interest in fighting anymore. I may not deserve peace, but I will cling to it nonetheless, just as they will cling to the few little years they have left. I will clutch quiet next to my heart and treasure it. And what if it grows too loud? I asked her. What if the clamor outside of this sanctuary grows too loud? and you are overwhelmed by it. She raised an eyebrow, and then her glass to her lips. Before she drank, she said simply, I am more than the challenges I face. And so, my friends, am I. And so, my friends, are you. Life is not always easy. Obsessions take hold, anxieties grasp at us. Challenges come into our lives and sometimes cannot be won right away. Sometimes they cannot ever be won. But we are more than the challenges we face. I must remember that. As I see the smoke billowing in the sky, as I hear the clattering of steel against stone. I must remember that my heart beats faster and faster, not because my home is being threatened, but because it is my home, and it feels threatened. There, there, little flighty green thing in my chest. Hush now. Funny little organ I've never seen, but have known my whole life. Calm down. Make my home peaceful again. Through my own will alone. 
and the hearth will glow warm and bright again. In here, and I shall sleep soundly. Sweet dreams, my friends. everyone, and thank you so much for listening to episode 155 of On a Dark Cold Night. This is your host, writer, podcaster, composer, performer, Kristen Zaza. How are you this week? Do you feel peace in your forest, or do you feel the need for it? Either way, I hope you find a bit of it with me tonight. Either way, I hope we can sit in peace together just for a moment, perhaps. Happy August, dear friends. I would like to take a moment to thank my newest Patreon supporter, Rennie Allen. Thank you so much, Rennie, for all of your support and for your monthly pledge. I'm so grateful. Every monthly Patreon supporter receives access to my ever-evolving soundtrack of On a Dark Cold Night. And new as of last month, any supporter who pledges $5 US or more can access a monthly tarot reading video that I'll be making for every full moon. You can check the first one out already and look forward to another one later this month. If you'd like to learn more, check it out at patreon.com slash darkcoldnight. If you'd like to support the show on a one-time basis instead and without access to those perks, feel free to buy me a coffee at ko-fi.com slash darkcoldnight. And we also have t-shirts and hoodies for purchase at bonfire.com slash on-a-dark-cold-night. If you enjoy the show and want to support what I do in a free way, I would love it if you left me a review on iTunes. It really means the world to me, and you can also do so on Facebook or wherever else you like to shout out podcasts. And as always, feel free to follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at a dark cold night, Instagram at darkcoldnightpodcast, or my Facebook and YouTube pages just called On a Dark Cold Night. Thank you so much for listening in this week, my friends. It's been a bit of an anxiety-inducing time for me, and I don't say that to vent, but rather to say that I hear you when you tell me that you feel it, and it gets overwhelming sometimes. I feel it too, my friends. But I will say one more time for me, for you, for anyone who needs to hear it. We are more than the challenges we face. And right now, we can just be peaceful. Sweet dreams, sweet friends. Good night. This podcast has been brought to you by the Sonar Network. Sonar.